0: This is the Neurosurgery Podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, I am continuing our mini-series on the U.S. military and neurosurgery, and I am so delighted that Ricky introduced us to Tyrone Young. Tyrone, welcome to our podcast.
0: Uh, Dr. Wang. Thank you for having me.
1: Great. Perfect. Tyrone is currently in medical school, but I want him to give uh, the young people, and I do want to focus today a little bit more on the younger folks, on some of his background, because as we have gone deeper into this mini series, we realize that a lot of the decisions people make in terms of their interaction with um, service, if you'll call it that, uh, in the U.S. military in particular happens at a very young age. So I'd like, I'd like Tyrone to really direct his attention more so To our younger audience, because there's so many people that are starting summer. My own kids are going into summer. They're trying to figure out what to do with their lives, how to enhance their lives. So, Tyrone, why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about your history, where you grew up, and how you got into the military?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So, I call both uh, Central Texas and the Shenandoah Valley, Virginia, home. Um, I have two younger siblings, both in college right now. Um, I grew up in a household that really uh, prioritized service. all three of my parents, both my biologic and my stepfather, all served in the military. Um, and so I grew up understanding the importance of giving back to your community, whether that be um, nationally in terms of military service or just at a local level. Um, and so coming out of high school, I attended the United States Military Academy at West Point. Um, and that decision, uh, surprisingly, was not driven uh, by my parents Um Although my parents did all serve in the military, none of them pushed me when it came time uh, to pick colleges uh, or promoted me like joining straight out of high school. Uh, they really wanted me to just find what was the best fit for me. And so I think at that point I had enough perspective uh, to recognize that you can get a great education anywhere, um, but you don't necessarily learn how to be a leader uh, amongst your peers um, anywhere. And that was something that set the service academies apart. And so that, in consideration of the fact that I knew I wanted to do um, incorporate service in some capacity to what I did going forward, uh, West Point was a no-brainer for me. And thankfully, I was admitted. I attended there. I did four years. And from there, I commissioned into the United States Army, initially as an infantry officer, and then I later switched to become a nuclear medical scientist.
1: Yeah, look, can I just ask you, Tyrone, because not everybody knows about West Point nowadays, right? West Point is... Uh, the Army's Military Academy, right, along with Colorado Springs and the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, right? And it is um, four years of college. And when you graduate, what rank are you?
0: Exactly. So uh, each service, the Department of Defense is broken into three services, the Army, Navy, and Air Force, and each has their own respective military academy. Uh, So West Point is in New York. Um, Annapolis, the Naval Academy is in Annapolis, Maryland. And then Colorado Springs is the Air Force Academy. And coming out of the Coming out of West Point, you graduate and you're a second lieutenant, so you're the lowest tier of officer ranks.
1: Yeah, and and it is extremely difficult to get in, right? I, I've known lots of folks who tried again. Some have have gotten in, but you need like letters from your your senator and and stuff like that, right? I mean, it's really not like applying to just a routine college application, right?
0: Exactly. It's just it's it's similar, but there's more on top. So everyone still does. I I'm not sure if they still have it, but at the time I applied, it was. The common application, but in, in addition to that, you need a nomination from a uh, elected representative, and so I got mine from at the time Senator Mark Warner.
1: And if and when you're in college, it's different, right? So most people think about going to college; they're like going to parties on the weekends and they're drinking a lot or they're doing, you know, all kinds of random stuff or sleeping in every day. Right. And trying to not take classes on Fridays and Mondays and stuff like that. West Point is different, right? I mean, there is a, there is, as you said, there's an addition to the core curriculum, which is what you'd have to do in a typical college anyways. Right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the summer times are actually, uh, prioritized in terms of like military training, but throughout the year, there are a few classes you take that are military, uh, military tiered. And then on top of that, being on the campus and in institution, most of your professors and your faculty are military members themselves. So you're constantly reminded and molded uh, into becoming a future leader of America's sons and daughters.
1: That's really amazing. And it's uh, tuition is free as well, right?
0: It, it is financially free. You come out of the academy owing five years, a minimum of five years of active duty service to uh, the military.
1: Okay. Fantastic. So so you finish at West Point, graduate, and then you go on to military service for five years?
0: Yes. So I graduated from West Point. And I initially commissioned as an infantry officer, a ground, ground, ground combat maneuver officer. Uh, was spent doing that for about a year and then switched and became a nuclear medical scientist, which was in line with what i with what I studied in undergrad as nuclear engineering.
1: Wow. Okay. And then now you are in medical school, right? How's that going?
0: Uh it's going well, thankfully. Um, so I just finished my first year at the end of May, and I'm currently spending the summer uh, doing a student research fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering here in the city.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. Your, your, your knowledge and your experience and in, in, in all of that in the nuclear realm really probably helps you in the cancer uh, treatment realm, right?
0: It's, it's definitely driven uh, my interest, and there's definitely a sense of familiarity yeah,
1: yeah. Well, one of our earliest episodes, we interviewed John Adler, a former mentor of mine from Stanford who invented this cyber knife. And now he's, uh, he's got a new company called Zap Surgical. He's so he's fascinating. He's a genius. And, you know, for, for those people out there listening, thinking about, wow, should I, like, why do I need physics for, you know, for medical school? Why is that a requirement? And the answer is, uh, duh, like, we live in a physical world and and radiation is just one of the most um obvious examples of why we need to understand uh, radiation physics uh, for if you even have to figure out how you run a fluoro machine, right? (laughs) Or do it, shoot an x-ray. Absolutely. Um, It it is fascinating. So, so you're thinking about neurosurgery, is that right?
0: Yes, I am.
1: Fantastic. Well, we definitely encourage folks like you to apply and and want to buttress your uh, educational and experiential process as much as possible. But tell us a little bit about the discipline um, that you acquired in the first nine years before going to medical school. And, you know, you hear people say, wow, you know, first, second year of medical school, it's so hard. There's so much to memorize. It's so overwhelming. Tell, tell us about your personal experience.
0: You know, that's a great question. And I think, based, again, based on my experience, I think medical school so far, um, I've only experienced like the preclinical parts, which is all classroom. And I truly feel that your experience and sense of intensity of medical school is really driven by um, the specialties that you're interested in. Um, If you, I have friends and classmates who are interested in primary care and that results in them having maybe a lot more flexibility outside of class. Whereas people who are interested um, in like neurosurgery like myself, orthopedics or other uh, specialties that are traditionally very competitive. um, They're required. We are required to essentially do a lot and get involved outside of class very early. Um, and so I, I think class by itself is quite manageable. It m- this might be the most academically intensive experience that I've had so far, but overall it's, it's definitely digestible and, and doable.
1: Yeah, you know, Tyrone, it's quite interesting that you bring that up about primary care because it always, it always uh, struck me as an enigma because my my brother's an internist, and he's brilliant, that if you said the corpus of knowledge, the, the entirety of the knowledge, as vast as it is for a neurosurgeon to acquire is immense, right, then you would probably also have to concede that the body of knowledge that an internist would have to acquire would be 30 times that, right? And yet, when you go to medical school, and I'm not putting down primary care doctors in any way. It's exactly as you say that many of the folks who choose the, the more generalized, let's call it generalized specialties, they seem to be less focused. And I don't want to say that they acquire less information, but you get that feel, right? I mean, it's it's that they they don't feel the pressure to score as well on exams or do as much research. And it always struck me as odd, shouldn't they be doubling down on their knowledge and experiential base?
0: Yeah, I think, um, I truly think that I guess what's expected of you at these different levels really drives how people perform. And so to the point that you spring up, I think that's a really good sentiment. And I think ultimately because there's so much different demands depending on like the lane that you're in, um, you do what's expected of you. Um, and so I've been really privileged, for example, this summer spending time in the neurosurgery department at MSK under Dr. William Newman and Dr. Uh, Mark Bilsky, um, recognizing that the work that you put in now, it, it pays off and you can see that in in, in like the extents, like the breadth and the depth of their knowledge. And so um, just really appreciative of the experiences that I've had so far and doing my best to get involved early and in, Make myself a competitive applicant for the future.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shout shout out to Mark Bilski. He did a wonderful podcast episode that was very popular for us about two years back. Mark is a good friend and, and really a pioneer in in spinal oncology and separation surgery. But let me let me ask you about this concept of um, expectation because you know this is I struggle with this. We have one of the largest spine fellowships, if not the largest in the world, and we have three residents a year here in Miami. And so I have a lot of trainees around me, right? I've got probably um, four spine fellows plus the 21 residents at any given rotation. So it's a lot of folks around me. And and I, and my wife asked me about this. My wife Amy says, you know, how do you like at the beginning of the year? Because we're here to, 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 today is the beginning of the year for us, right?
0: Right.
1: How do I lay down a reasonable and um, and adequate yet challenging set of expectations to people around me? underneath me, if you will, in training? And how do I communicate that? And I'm, I will admit that I'm very bad at this. I, this is a major deficit of mine. I, I never would have gotten into West Point. Um, tell, tell me how they do it at West Point, and then how they do it in the military. Then tell me how that translates into what you're experiencing today in medical school. And maybe, you know, in your, again, this is your personal experience, right? I, I know that you're not in charge of the curriculum at any of these places, but right. how did you experience that and, and what models are effective?
0: I think at a baseline, it all comes down to develop, developing yourself as not only a strong leader, but a servant leader. Um, obviously, I can't speak to the purview of being a, a fellowship director or even the academic professors here or the curriculum, di- curriculum uh, directors. But uh, in my experience, both at West Point and in the military, West Point specifically, Part of the process is essentially breaking you down, and that's also a component that's pretty common in the military. In that, making you recognize what your limitations are, what your limitations are, but also like how far you can actually go, and then also recognizing that you can't do everything. And there's certain times where you have done everything right or prepared as best as you can, and you'll still be wrong. Um, and so, I guess in communicating effectively, it's it's always establishing clear clearly and effectively what the standard is, um, didactically laying out what the steps are to reach that goal and doing your best to foster environment foster environment that isn't necessarily easy, uh, but it's communicative it's it's supportive, um, while still remaining tough. And so I think that was really important for me in like developing discipline while I was at West Point. Um, going through just that, that, that rigid environment, you get to a point where you're very familiar with maintaining a rigid schedule, like effectively managing your time, as well as taking initiative. Um, and then initially, and then after that, commissioning and then joining the military and then becoming an officer where you're in charge of different people, um, laying down the standard from the very beginning, uh, letting your soldiers know what is expected of them, showing how you're willing to help them and support them throughout the way, and then holding them accountable. Um, and I think that was a consistent uh, sentiment I saw throughout my time in service of leaders that I really admired.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. If any of my patients are listening, they know that I frequently use this analogy, and I tend to, you know, talk more at a at a higher level or more abstract level with my patients. That going to surgery is like going to war, and I don't mean to to make light of going to war. What I'm saying is that surgery, by definition, is the entry into um, an interaction with a patient, a physical interaction where there lies tremendous uncertainty and decisions are made at, at every turn with a lack of complete information of, of the um, implications or the effects, right? So, you know, when you see a well-executed surgery, it's beautiful because you're like, wow, like so many bad things could have happened, but mm-hmm. yet everything went smoothly. But it's not unusual for there to be many instances where there are uh, occurrences that could easily lead to problems, or even temporarily lead to setbacks, uh, and sometimes disastrous problems. Right? And you've right. been you've been to surgery now. You've seen that, right? Yes. And so, it strikes me that uh, in the arenas, let's say West Point, or let's say neurosurgery residency, we demand the highest level of order in the training and the peacetime operations, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. while understanding that when the actual interaction happens, there's the highest variability, right? That's what makes neurosurgery exciting is that it is, in a moment's notice, disastrous and, and deadly and maiming, right? And so to me, it, it seems so interesting that talking to someone like you, who you come with, obviously, your even your speech is disciplined, that you need to bring that order. Otherwise, it, if you believe in a chaos model, then every surgical or wartime interaction, combat interaction will be uh, not just chaos, but utter chaos, right? I mean, am I saying this right? I don't know if I'm drawing the right analogy here.
0: No, from my perspective, I completely agree. I I myself have not been in in, um, combat conflict, but in terms that I can relate to, um, both in military service and high stress environments, but then also I had the privilege of being on the Army football team while I was in college. and. I think it's absolutely necessary that you you have this expectation uh, of order to the highest standard because of what you just mentioned, because of the moments of variability, because of the moments of chaos. Uh, a common common rhetoric you hear in the military is that you, in times of like chaos, you resort to your training, you resort to practice, and so if you prepare um, to the best of your ability, you you are most set up for success in times where things are gray or things are unclear
1: yeah so so let's bring football in because football is often considered an allegory for war right in a way and um tell us because you played football right what position did you play yeah, so i was a running back one in college oh wow so you were running back in on the west point team yes and there's
0: that big army navy deal and all that how many times did you guys beat the navy uh, you know, while I was there, we never got to beat them, but I like to say the very next year we did, so we, you know, we sowed the seeds for success. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, it's not easy to beat the Navy. So tell me about the discipline and what
1: it takes from the sports arena, from football in particular, right? Which is a, a sport that has real consequences. It's not like um, you know, like playing badminton, not that badminton does have consequences, but there's very few physical consequences to the player, right? But football, especially running back, you are a battering ram, right, for the team. Um that is one of the most vulnerable positions. So tell us about that analogized to surgery as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So my own experience, I wasn't a recruited athlete. I walked onto the football team my first summer there. And what I didn't realize um, is that once you get to the division one level, the collegiate level sports and especially football is a full-time job. Um, I think that's like the first analogy to to surgery or this profession in healthcare, Um, we would regardless of what else you had going on in terms of your academic or what's, or like academy responsibilities, um, especially in season football, you're spending six to eight hours a day dedicated, whether that be watching film, getting treatment um, in position meetings and team meetings in workouts and practice in meals, and then also like study periods as a team. Uh, And so it requires a, uh, like an intense amount of discipline um, I think often football and sports frequently by people who aren't necessarily interested in, are looked at as brute and um, not necessarily like the most intellectually stimulating, but there's a ton of strategy involved in sports, especially football. And so there are a ton of parallels there between um, healthcare professions, and specifically surgery or neurosurgery, and that there's a ton that you have to consider, that you have to prepare for, that you have to think about, and you do it. You want to do it to the point that you've practiced it so much that when you're in that moment, you're just reacting, uh, because there's not always time to sit and think.
1: Yeah. You know, I follow Joe Rogan. He's obviously the number one podcaster in the world, uh, to date and currently, and, uh, this week's episode, Joe had ice cube, uh, the rapper and actor, uh, on, and you know, personality on, and I don't know if you, you heard the interview. It's like every one of his interviews is three hours long, but, um, Ice Cube talks about playing football, and he he was he was mentioning that in in professional football they don't pay you to play the games. You don't have to pay someone to go out with the bright lights and millions of people watching. They pay you to practice, and uh, I thought that was really appropriate because as you've described it, that what six to eight hours a day? Wow, that's a lot of time when you're in college, right? Absolutely. And and so you have all these lessons. You have. Uh, U.S. military experience, you have West Point, which is a slightly different than military experience, and you have the the time playing football. T- tell me why, you know, this is not an interview, right? So, so yeah. I, I don't want you to feel like you're going to be on the spot, but why neurosurgery? Like, I mean, how, how did you get motivated to do
0: this? Yeah, that's a great question. So I guess I'll start with, I think my why medicine kind of translates into that. So um I think all of the adult women in my family that are bi- that I'm biologically related to have all had different battles with cancer. And so that's something that I was very familiar growing up with. Um, and so I always, in the back of my head, I had an interest in, you know, being a part of the solutions for other people going through these different battles. Um, I My senior year in college, I did a capstone project, actually in conjunction with a um, and Saline Kettering as well, um, trying to model essentially radiation exposure and radiation doses for in order to predict values for for patients because there aren't any regulatory uh, limits on the amount of uh, radiation exposure that patients can have and you know that experience confirmed for me that you know working with the different medical physicists and some of the other physicians um and then seeing the patients and how you know just like how strong will they were it was like this is something I, I could absolutely do regardless of the pay um that plus my time in service where I worked at different points is in an engineering capacity, um, really formed my, my interest in intersecting oncology and surgery. Uh, and then from there, I've kind of, in this past year, I've kind of spent some time in some of the different specialties or subspecialties where the intersection exists. And I'm just really fascinated with um, the anatomy when it comes to the brain and the spine and uh, dealing with oncological patients in those in that department, and I've absolutely been blessed with uh, being exposed to a handful handful of different uh, neurosurgeons who are just really awesome mentors and leaders. And it seems like a community that I would love to be a part of.
1: Well, Tyrone, before you know it, we're going to be calling you Dr. Young. Uh, thank you for your service to our country. Uh, thank you for sharing your time with us. I uh, know that you're going to be an amazing force in our field. I hope you join our ranks soon. I would absolutely love to have you back on uh, as you go through this process. You you are very well put together, and I think you're going to have an amazing career as a
0: neurosurgeon. Thank you, Dr. Wang. It's truly a privilege to, uh, to be here. Disclaimer time. The
1: opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's
0: just a show, everybody.